Thank you for tuning in to CIO Speaks with host Steve Ginsberg. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Steve's research and insights. Hi, I'm Steve Ginsberg. My guest today is Dion Hinchcliffe, well known for his thought leadership in the digital workplace, enterprise IT, customer experience, agile methods, CIO issues, and digital transformation. In this episode, we'll get Dion's insight into digital transformation and some of the most important changes facing the enterprise today. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Steve. I wanted to start by asking, in your view, what are some of the best ways to create effective digital strategy? Well, strategy is a is a difficult topic when it comes to technology in general. The um, we have the famous saying in the tech business that um, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch. Right. So the um, the best laid plans uh, often don't survive first contact uh, with with uh, the opposition. Uh, you know, so these are all tried sayings, but uh, the when we find leaders that are successful with strategy, they're able to find ways of getting it uh, executed on the ground, um, and they're able to then validate it um, and uh, use the information they learn. This is what what we're at, things like agile methodologies um, uh, taught us that when it comes to technology, it's very difficult for us to predict what's going to happen because it's a relatively new field compared to almost any other human endeavor, uh, digital technology in particular. Uh, and so we find that uh, the, the best strategies are, are ones that are more heuristic than they are detailed plans laid out in advance, which are very rarely in the digital world ever come out the way that, that you expect. Or yeah, you, you make a great point there about getting the strategy through to completion. Uh, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit also about overcoming objections or, you know, the, how the influence once you're moving from strategy into uh, implementation and, and kind of getting that buy-in that IT groups need. Well, and, and uh, it really depends on who's driving digital strategy. Is it, uh, is it just the IT leader or is it, is it the business leader? And it typically is not the two of them together. Uh, IT strategies usually have something that uh, usually have plans that kind of cross different business units, different divisions, certainly different business systems. And so it's often very hard to get, let's say, the CMO who's spending as much uh, on digital as uh, the CIO uh, is in many cases now on the same timeline with the same priorities as, let's say, the chief financial officer or the chief supply chain officer. Uh, All three often have very different priorities and timelines. And so cross-cutting strategy is notoriously difficult um, uh, and then getting getting the, the buy-in which requires a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of negotiation uh, and a lot of compromise uh, often requires getting going up into the boardroom and getting someone very senior typically the CEO to get everyone to agree on what that's going to be and uh, especially when we talk in terms of digital transformation strategy which all of those have to be more aligned than than almost ever before, that can be a real issue. And so we, we see strategy often being driven down into the organization saying, can we decentralize the strategy into a larger number of efforts, you know, initiatives and projects that aren't so tightly linked? And then can we carry it out a little bit more um, 
carried out in a way that doesn't require so much lockstep execution. Yeah, it's a good way to maybe avoid needing as much buy-in and as much uh, consensus, I guess. Um, I'm wondering in, in that regard, um, how do you feel about the emergence of the chief digital officer, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis CIO roles? Well, the challenge traditionally in IT has been that uh, it hasn't really been a P&L, a profit and loss center of its own. It's been a cost center. It's overhead, uh, and so there's often been a lot of interest in, in making sure it's highly efficient um, and that it costs as little as possible. Where if you look at digital businesses, they tend to want to spend as much as possible, invest as much as possible to gain market share. So if you look at an Amazon or a Google, you know, versus a uh, Sears or you know other traditional organization. It hasn't done so well in digital. You see very different investment level, um, and and uh, a, a a technology company, a digital business, tends to spend twice as much on on IT. And this is where the the, the chief digital officer role is typically somebody who has experience uh, operating a PNL, who has much more uh, business experience than let's say IT experience, but typically has both. Uh, has made some sense in order to spearhead that. Side of IT, IT as a business, uh, as the business. Um, but I think long term, uh, and we do see this. I, I continually see announcements that the CIO is getting the CDO role added to them. This is that's relatively new in the last couple of years. Uh, we see they still want one one um, leader at the very top in charge of all technology decisions. Otherwise, you end up with two IT leaders, two sense of priority, two sense of strategies, two sense of foundations, uh, and it, it's very difficult to make them both work. Or often you see the CDO rolling up to the, uh, reporting up to the CIO these days. So I think it's going to, after the, the digital line of business gets built out, I think that um, we're seeing that, that that's often getting rolled back into IT um, and that expertise getting flowed back in, but uh, you, you still see divisions as well. Are you also seeing um, a similar or is it different number of cases of CDO being tied to product organizations? You see, I definitely see the CDO being tied to product organizations. Uh, um, the uh, and, and certainly uh, spearheading even a new digital division, right? So, you know, it can be the product organization, a new digital division. They're, they're typically... Uh, not grounded nearly as much in IT. They often have a dotted line over there to the CIO, um, but there's often a direct report. So yeah, no, definitely see that. And similarly, do you see chief data officer making a good sense in a lot of organizations? And if so, is there probably this kind of same in some cases that would be overlapped with uh, one or both of these roles? Well, the... Uh, the data officer is a, a little bit more varied role, and we we see organizations that are very data heavy. You know, financial institutions in particular, um, but they can be in you know in, in virtually any field. Getting a data officer uh, when the the importance of getting a consistent story around the organization's data and using it strategically can't be done inside just an IT organization. So, you know, there might be a, a heavy scientific or uh, physical sciences component you know, where they're, you know, uh, I was talking to the American Geophysical Union the other day, and they're sitting on a wealth of data. It is so broad that it's far 
exceeds the scope of any IT department. Uh, they simply have to get uh, uh, you know a, uh, a handle on creating master data uh, around 80 years of scientific research that's relative, that's both structured and unstructured. So how do they how do they do that? Uh, and uh, and that's something that goes far beyond just the purview because it goes into the you know actual scientific advances itself and and uh, uh, you know, scientific literature. Uh, that's something that just the domain expertise doesn't exist in IT and, and arguably shouldn't necessarily uh, reside solely in IT. So it becomes a, you know, more of a business function. So you see in organizations like that uh, where data is so paramount and so rooted in in the and what they do uh, from a uh, from a domain perspective, I think that the chief digital officer makes a lot of sense, and it's also that's that's the key competitive advantage for the organization. Yeah, makes makes sense as well. Um, there's been a lot of hype around digital transformation, but I see you've done a lot of very detailed work in this area. What's your view of what really matters here? Well, it's um, you know there there's a lot of trite. You know, Phrases that are that still remain true about about the practice, right? So, you know, some folks I talk to say, "Well, are we still talking about digital transformation?" And I think most organizations are going to be talking about it for the for the rest of the time that they're around. I mean, the, the um, we're in the very very early days of digital. Uh, you know, it, it, we'll be doing it for most likely hundreds of more years, and. It's uh, because of the exponential rate of technology change. It's going to be a very challenging topic for the foreseeable future for every organization. And so it requires new techniques that we haven't existed before. We, we haven't had to operate for an extended period of time in an exponential operating environment. Uh, and, and so a lot of the change that we're seeing is, is happening so quickly that organizations can't keep up. Right, so this is uh, you know the famous Martex law: uh, technology changes exponentially, uh, but organizations change at best logarithmically. Right, and so there's this widening gap between the operating environment and what organizations are capable of doing, are capable of keeping up. And so we need all new ways of adapting to the challenge, and we need sustainable ways of adapting to the challenge. And uh, that's where a lot of the strategy is really just focused on the short term. How do we build some digital products as opposed to how do we sustain long-term change in a way that uh, we can do repeatedly and reliably? Right? When we don't feel getting the glimmerings of what those of what those techniques are. So one we are one thing one sense we are getting clearly if we look at organizations that have successfully ridden that curve. You know, if you look at the, the Nikes, the Burberry's, the Disney's, and they, and they do tend to be very consumer-facing organizations. Um, they are they have more decentralized change than they have these large, big, big digital transformation and initiatives. They tend to have autonomy in the business units, yet they share innovations. Um, they allow, you know, eccentric activity in the margins, but uh, they have a strong corporate culture that brings these ideas together and they're able to take the best pieces and share them with other parts of the business. Um, that seems to be a, a recurring pattern. Uh, the, the empowerment of change agents, allowing innovators inside the organization to, to try things out and not be, high-performing organizations usually uh, highly penalize failure. They really prize success. Um, but that's not necessarily true in, in organizations that do a lot of successful continuous 
a digital transformation, and there aren't that many examples. So it's interesting to see. So we're learning these new these new sustainability techniques in the exponential era, and it's just you know we have to to ride that curve. And so um, we are seeing you know the first frameworks kind of uh, they can they can cope with this. But uh, uh, I've written a lot about this, and I've, I've published a number of of these frameworks kind of adapted um, kind of as a hybrid from a, a number of organizations and what they've done that, that's worked. But fast learning, um, fast experimentation, a rapid uh, measurement of what you've done and rolling that. I mean, it, it, it's agile in the uh, methods in the large to some extent, uh, but it's also much more wide-scale decentralized empowerment inside our organizations also seems to be uh, one of the key success patterns. One of the areas where you've talked about um, applying those is uh, customer experience with worker experience and supply partner experience. Uh, how do you see these three coming together and, and what advice would you have for IT organizations there? Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm not the, uh, by any means, the first uh, person to point out that the functional structure of our organizations today was really invented in a different era, right? When we had, we really uh, focused on efficiency uh, and, uh, you know, uh, functional specialization. Um, and, and the industrial revolution was based on that. So we could, if you do the same thing over and over again, you can do it a lot faster than if you do each piece of the process individually, uh, of a highly varied process in particular. Um, and, and so but today when everything is automated, that's no longer true. And um, what's more important, the most important boundary right now in our organizations is the one between us and our customers. And that's become incredibly sophisticated and complex, whereas we used to have a few relatively standardized touch points. We now have dozens, sometimes hundreds for certain types of organizations uh, of digital touch points with our, uh, with our customers. And they expect us to know us at each one of those and be able to pick up the conversation where we left off. And these increasingly complicated pictures of the journey that a customer takes and, and learning about us and, and um, uh, wanting to do business with us and then, uh, you know, learning to work with us and use our sophisticated services to grow with us and learn and, uh, and then stay with us uh, as customers. And, that requires a, a a a very sophisticated set of features that's offered from the entire organization, and and typically in in our, our regular you know, in, throughout history, we've grown the customer from marketing to sales to delivery or operations and to customer care and other resources. And we might periodically reach out to them with another, you know, with our our product innovation groups or R and D to learn about. Uh, what they know about our products, uh, and each one of those is essentially a different set of people and a different set of conversations, and um, it, it, it works very poorly now. And so, so what I've proposed is that we really need to organize uh, uh, our businesses around three main streams: that's the customer experience, the worker experience, and the supplier experience. Those are the three big boundaries, the three big work streams, and they're they're actually connected, of course. And so workers being employees um, and contractors, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't want to say employees because companies are consist of quite a complex set of, of people that deliver the services. And, and even contracting now you know, with a gig economy is getting even on demand. I, 
just now whole services allow you to, to hire teams on demand for a week to complete something, you know, a development project, a creative task, or, uh, or you know, or, you know, drill an oil well for you, for that example. It's all visually delivered. And, and when you, um, when yeah, you look at so, supplier partners, I assume you're saying that they're grouped with similarities, but you'd still make distinctions about sort of how the business manages those relationships as well. Yeah, and, and a lot of suppliers are highly strategic and they're business partners, and they they have a lot of different uh, rules and different capabilities uh, enabling and constraining them. So, you know, business partners uh, uh, have a different seat at the table than, than workers do, for example. Are organizations doing well organizing around these principles and, and kind of managing to each kind of with both collective and uh, individual focus? Yeah, well, we have this interesting uh, tendency in the tech business that once we see a solution, we think that everyone should immediately, uh, we, we, should, we should somehow be able to change it and immediately adopt it and use it. You know, I remember uh, I used to say, well, it will take organizations 10 to 15 years to adopt agile methods. And, and people scoffed and said, well, if that's what we should do, it should take us no time at all. But change really is uh, involving technology, uh, it really involves people. And that's the hardest part. It's easy to change technology. It's relatively hard hard to change people. And I would I would put forth that such a fundamental change to our organizations when there's so much history around you know the C level roles and these functional specializations and that's what everybody's still taught in school. Uh, I would argue that you're talking about a much longer term uh, gradual change. I think it's inevitable because you now see uh, so much effort. For example, reorganizing things around customer experience. That's that's the big differentiator. If you look at the number one factor that determines uh, profitability, for example, right now, uh, if you look at like the, the watermark consulting uh, S&P 500 benchmark, the customer experience leaders greatly um, outperform the S&P 500 by lag greatly underperform it. It's the biggest discriminator. Um, and so... Uh, you see companies really trying to figure out how to better organize. And is it a, you know, they're, they're, just, they're kind of doing tactical experiments like adding a chief customer officer as opposed to, you know, if, you, if you're really going to do it, you really have to organize around, you know, the, the most important thing that matters to your business. It's, I think you're talking about a change that's going to be inevitable but take more like 20 to 30 years. So we can say that the average organization is, is structured that way. How do you think IT organizations should view investment in this era? Well, IT organizations um, have often been uh, constrained by, for example, the, the quarterly profit cycle. So that you know, there's there's a desire to, to turn in regular performance numbers on short increments, and that worked when everybody was playing by the same rules. But you have certain technology companies um, which are plowing in all of their profits into to becoming a leader in their sector, you know, uh, even despite what the market, even being, being punished by the market, understanding that if they don't do that, that there may not be a future. So uh, organizations like Amazon.com, you know, Jeff Bezos famously plowed in virtually all of its profits and it's a very little profit taking for year after year after year, I was able to withstand it. Um, knowing that if he didn't invest everything that he could, that he, he very likely couldn't uh, maintain that number one position. Uh, that's a very different cycle than most, you know, IT departments, which don't aren't perceived as being the business. Uh, and there are also the traditional organization is saddled by another uh, 
issue, which I've talked a lot about in the industry with a lot of CIOs, uh, written a lot about, uh, done a lot of talks about, which is uh, a major off-balance liability called technical debt. And most organizations, especially older organizations, have you know, 20, 30, 40 years of legacy systems. Um, you know, a hundred thousand person organization typically has 2,500 to 3,000 applications that run the business of varying age and maturity. And 80 to 90% of the IT budget is spent maintaining and keeping those alive as opposed to driving innovation. There's very little money in a traditional organization that isn't already being spoken for by keeping the lights going on existing systems. Um, and and paying down some technical debt, but it's it's this un, um, uh, technical debt is the, the making expedient decisions uh, to to deal with the, the schedule realities, budget realities of today, and putting them off to tomorrow for for often your, often a CIO successor to deal with. So it sounds uh, intentionally like, unintentionally both. So it sounds like part of that is that you encourage organizations to uh, take a firm look at what legacy products they have and can they be retired and up-leveled, those type of things? Well, there's, there's that, and some of that is technical debt. Then there's all of those, those uh, hundreds of expedient decisions that were made over the years that have to be fixed if the organization wants to move fast. Because often what happens is the organization sits down and says, let's move quickly, let's, let's uh, organize better, and then they're faced with the realities of these mountains of technical debt and, and hundreds of legacy systems which are holding them back. And they have to remediate a lot of them before they can begin to innovate. So their, their customer data may be scattered across all of these things and access to it may be hampered through by technical debt. And then they, and then, people, and then the, the board wonders why they can't move as fast as their digital competitors. New digital competitors which have comparatively fewer legacy systems than fewer, less technical debt. Right. I, I tend to think of this part in part over the years as it would be great if everything is in one database, but it also would not be great if everything is in one database. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. On the uh, tech side of uh, the world, you've also written uh, that how microservices will become the core of business strategy for most organizations. How are you seeing this played out? Uh, so I see this a actively happening, uh, which is one of the reasons I wrote that, um, that every organization realizes that they have to unleash their data to serve the business, the rest of the business, and their customers. And so the ways to, you know, doing that has typically been you know, the application programming interface, the API, which a lot of people, you know, their eyes glaze over when they hear about the, the plumbing of IT, but it's, it's not that. It's, you know, Amazon built one of the world's largest digital businesses uh, on, on this concept of opening up your business for use by others programmatically, saying that I can connect my business to your business live, right? That's, it's the ultimate real-time supply chain. And, um, for example, um, uh, I, I was uh, talking to the um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and they already processed 25% of all of their transactions through their API. And they had come to the sudden realization that, well, it, Pretty soon, that's going to be most of their business. But they uh, they have to design. They have a bunch of ad hoc kind of evolving APIs that kind of grew up uh, more accidentally than as a deliberate corporate strategy, right? um, uh, you know, deliberate organizational strategy. Uh, and they realize that well, if this is the future of how their business is going to run, most of their business is going to operate through their microservices, right? which is 
the, the current way is kind of, a vision of, of of saying let's create a kind of a master view of our business view of our organization through these interfaces that is designed for the long term is designed to be managed and governed properly. Um, that uh, that they probably need you know to, to to think differently and design it differently than they have in the past. And it was just a kind of a, something that some parts of the organization did on the ground. Right? So they, they discovered they had a bunch of APIs designed to different parts of the organization that didn't really fit together, that weren't designed to work together, that weren't part of a cohesive whole. And I think most organizations are finding themselves that way. And certainly tech companies have have gotten their religion. Microsoft has made you know what they call them, you know, what uh CEO Sally Nadella has called their, their big bet, which is uh, Microsoft Craft, which is basically microservices for everything that Microsoft offers, offers a company access to all of their own data through one master set of microservices. So tech companies are doing it. Uh, government, big government is doing it. Uh, I see financial services companies are all uh, adopting microservices. Because it's the way to be part of a modern digital supply chain, to be, build an ecosystem, to be a platform, to do all the things that you're supposed to do as a digital company. Today. We've certainly drawn some similar conclusions here at GigaOM. Uh, are you therefore seeing most companies looking at a hybrid cloud or multi-cloud or both strategy? Well, I think that the ship has sailed. Uh, yeah, I hear about these conversations, and uh, you know, every organization today is already multi-cloud, right? So whether it's just software as a service and, and you have one official, let's say, public cloud provider. Um, but every organization is using multi-cloud, they just have to realize it. Uh, so you, you have to have a multi-cloud strategy that says, you know, where is my data? Uh, what are we paying for? How secure is it? Um, the dream, of course, is to be able to uh, be able to move workloads around to wherever it makes the most sense, to use the, the infrastructure as a service provider of your choice with the software stack of and applications of your choice to be able to mix and match. Those days will eventually come and you know we're seeing more and more providers coming to that logical conclusion. Like SAP, you know, famously makes you know the high end of all so many business systems, lets you run anything on any of their their applications on almost any cloud that you wish. Realizing that if they don't do that, they'll be the first to do that, then they're not the most appealing. They're not the ones offering the choice and not playing the bigger game. Uh, so I think that uh, you, you have organizations uh, uh, where we live very much in a multi-cloud world that we have to build strategies around it, and, that, and then we have to get our vendors to help us live in that world. You mentioned uh, SaaS applications, and of course, uh, as you said, it's no secret that most organizations are moving you know, vast amounts of their IT productivity and kind of digital workplace to SaaS applications one way or another. How do you see, you've, you've done some writing on digital workplace as well. How do you see that rolling out over time, uh, maybe in the next year or two specifically? Well, I, I think with the, uh, you know, the advent of things like Office 365, um, you know, which is, which is almost entirely cloud. I mean, uh, almost, it, uh, almost all net new IT is cloud these days, even though I think still about, um, only about eighty-five percent of IT, uh, oh, sorry, eighty-five percent of IT is on-prem today. If you look at the global numbers, and fifty percent is cloud. Cloud is growing, and you know, on-prem is shrinking dramatically uh, for new projects. And so that's that's how that transition is happening. And, and that's particularly true of digital workplace, which isn't as viewed as as, 
as core IT necessarily. If email goes down for half a day, it's really bad, but it's not going to not a you know front page of the Wall Street Journal event as if your order system or your supply chain went down, right? So um, it's often uh, software as a service is considered a safe choice for employee productivity tool. Uh, and knowing that, but we do see employee productivity tools that space is is proliferating in a way it's hard to believe. There's you know there's dozens of new applications being made available every week, major new applications, uh, because uh, it's, it's becoming more specialized uh, and, and more nuanced. And the average worker has five times as much IT as they did, let's say, seven years ago, five times as many IT applications that they need to do their job. Uh, and so you, you, you see this, uh, the only way to feel that much IT and support it uh, and keep it updated is to do this in the cloud. And cloud uh, does result in much less overall technical debt uh, less of a legacy challenge because it's easier to keep updated uh, and to manage. And so that's, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting, but uh, it's also a challenge for, for uh, an opportunity for workers. Obviously, this will vary a little bit by organization, but as you look across all of this change, what would you say are the most valuable things that CIOs and their staff should be working on in 2019? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, the number one uh, thing that the CIO and the staff should be focusing on is, is how they can uh, deliver customer experience uh, for the best of the business. Uh, how uh, reaching out to their, uh, you know, across the aisle to their their counterparts, you know, the the chief marketing officer, the sales officer, the COO, um, and say, you know, do you have everything that that, that it, uh, it takes? As you know, what do you need from me? Uh, I think also preparing the organization for for digital transformation is absolutely key. Um, we see that the best success stories didn't just leap into digital transformation blind. They looked at, are we ready? Do we have the talent? What are the other submerged obstacles? You know, things like insufficient uh, uh, long-term spending, uh, uh, reducing technical debt, uh, getting the master data story together. There's a lot of preparatory work that if, uh, if you look at particular case studies, you know, I'm, I'm talking about uh, Nordstrom, for example, uh, the great Harvard Business Review case study showed they spent a couple of years getting their house in order and then they were able to move fast. So you have to move a little slow sometimes to then move quickly. And, and that's, a, that's a recurring lesson. So those are, those are key areas. Uh, and then I think just cultivating talent in general. Um, IT is changing more than it ever has, the complexion of it in terms of talent and being transdisciplinary, much more connected to the business, much more business savvy, much more data science uh, heavy, uh, and much more innovation centric. Uh, you need to have uh, folks that are business builders and entrepreneurs as much as they are uh, hardcore technology folks. Uh, and so uh, building that talent base is, is what I'm seeing CIOs having the most difficult time with right now. Um, the bench is, is small and you often have to create your own talent. And so that's, that would be the third leg in that school, I would say. Any tips for how to do that last piece? Well, I think that, um, as I alluded to, you, you're going to have to hire the talent. Uh, and the, uh, you're competing against the biggest tech companies in the world that are trying to hire the smartest people in the business. Uh, and that can be challenging, especially depending on your geography. And the next best way is, is to uh, is to mint the talent yourself. Uh, educational resources are of the uh, are of the best quality they've ever been 
or bringing up uh, IT managers uh, and, and senior staff. I talked to a lot of IT, a lot of CIOs, and, and, and the challenge is it tends to be towards the top half of the talent pool. It gets very, very thin. You, need, you have people who have built digital businesses successfully and know IT uh, and can uh, work in, work with, with the business and collaborate with them effectively that, that, uh, and do all these new things that we talk about here. Uh, the ranks thin dramatically, and and so you need mentoring and apprenticeship programs uh, that have a heavy kind of real time educational component. And we now see both traditional universities providing kind of continuing education design for this, uh, as well as these amazing on demand uh, learning capabilities, like massively uh, open online courses designed for the middle manager for. IT and you look at like you know Princeton and Harvard have made major investments in making these openly available to anybody who wants to. If you want to learn about this, it's a great time to do that. It's faster, easier, and cheaper than it ever has been. But we have to make time for our employees, our our up and comers, to take advantage of that. So that's you know that's uh, that's the challenge. But they, if you can't hire them, you're going to have to you're going to have to create the talent right? your talent pitch yourself. Turn to building them. Yeah, exactly. Well, great. Thank you very much, Ian. I appreciate your uh, joining us and uh, sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of CIO Speaks, please check out the other episodes in this series. Optimizing network interconnection in the changing cloud landscape is the focus of a new report called Connecting Clouds that Steve wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how IT leaders and organizations are overcoming challenges in the evolving cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.